Owen Wister, the Tenderfoot. He was a musician, world traveler, choir boy, a Harvard graduate, banker, lawyer, tourist, big game hunter, and an author of one of the most famous westerns of all time, The Virginian. Pioneers of outlaw country, cowboys, lawmen, and outlaws, to the businessmen and women who all helped shape Thermopolis in Hot Springs County, Wyoming. Here are their stories. Owen Wister, the Tenderfoot. the term tenderfoot first appeared in the Wild West. Gold and silver miners used the name in reference to the newcomers they had to endure. Not used to the exhausting work at the mines, the newly arrived fortune seekers soon discovered that the rocks and stones at mine sites were painful to step on, even while wearing boots. The miners, annoyed at all the newcomers, called them tenderfoots, until such a time when the newcomers' feet toughened up and the calluses protected them from the sharp stones. This term came to apply to those that lacked the skills to survive in the wild west of the late 1800s. After a long day on the range or checking traps, the cowboys and frontiersmen would sit around the campfires to swap tails and poke fun of each other and these tender feet. example of these tall tales was about a newcomer from back east. The story was told to the listening audience that this particular tenderfoot needed a horse for his homestead to help with the chores. However, he was wary of the broncos he saw the rowdy cowboys breaking in. The horse dealer didn't want to lose a sale, so he looked the tenderfoot up and down and said, you look like a decent fellow, so I'll tell you what. I'll make you a deal. He reached into his saddlebag and withdrew a coconut. I was gonna keep this for myself, but you look like you could use it. Dubiously, uh, the tenderfoot eyed the coconut. It's a mule egg, the horse trader proclaimed. I just hatched myself half a dozen, so I can spare this one. Intrigued, the tenderfoot accepted the mule egg and paid the horse trader in full. You just sit on it for about a week and you will have yourself one fine looking mule, much better than those wild broncs you have been looking at. The tenderfoot returned to his homestead and showed his family his prize. Everyone took turns sitting on the mule egg and waited impatiently for their new mule to arrive. One week passed and then another. By the third week, the tenderfoot realized he had been duped. Gosh darn it, he growled, grabbing up the mule egg. No wonder he sold it for so cheap. He knew it wasn't going to hatch. In his frustration, he threw the egg into a bush and startled out a jackrabbit. The entire family gave a loud cry and took off after the creature. 
come back, yelled the tenderfoot. I'm your papa, you fleet-footed mule. But it was no use. The jackrabbit escaped and exhausted. The tenderfoot collapsed to the ground. His wife and children caught up with him. Oh no, his wife said. The baby mule escaped. Probably a good thing too, said the tenderfoot, getting to his feet, shaking his head. It was much too fast and wild for me. I'm going to head back to town for one of those bronks. They look much tamer. Among those sitting by the campfire, listening to these tales being swapped, was a young man who embraced his tenderfoot title. One must come to the West to realize that it is a very much bigger place than the East. And the future America is just bubbling and seething in bare legs and pinifers here. I don't wonder a man never comes back East after he had once been here for a few years. It was July 2nd, 1885. A 25-year-old Owen Wister had just arrived in Wyoming from Philadelphia. This Harvard man was not here to seek his fortune, settle a ranch, or buy mule eggs. He had been sent here on doctor's orders. Wister, a musician and grandson of a famous Shakespearean actress, had suffered a nervous breakdown when his father ordered him to find a more suitable occupation than the arts. After a boring job as a banker, he was training to be a lawyer when his nerves broke. He became his cousin's norasthenia patient, the term used to describe what today we call anxiety and depression. Dr. Silas Wire Mitchell believed that what civilization has hurt, barbarism shall heal. He saw norasthenia as a consequence of American exceptionalism and the outdoors as the antidote to the modern American marketplace with its demands and depletions. Mitchell called on his anxious, wealthy Easterner patients to restore themselves in the West. Thus, Mitchell prescribed to Owen Wister his famous camp cure. Despite uh, Mitchell's version of camp as a stark departure from civilization, camp cure participants kept about them many of the luxuries of modern life. Although they lived in the wilderness for a few weeks, they went with guides and companions, ate heartily, and returned to civilization often. An important element of the camp cure was journaling about one's experiences in the wilderness, which Mitchell called word sketching. Heeding his doctor's advice, Wister went west to Wyoming and began to journal on July 2nd, 1885. These prescribed writings about his experiences ultimately changed American culture forever when he used his notes to write his best-selling novel, the Virginian, a horseman of the plains. Largely based on Wister's own experiences as a participant in the camp cure, the Virginian details the tenderfoot, a norasthenic Easterner, and his rise to that of red-blooded Western manhood under the guidance of a genuine frontier hero, the Virginian cowboy. 
Worcester detailed the scenery, the colorful people, and his experiences in his journals. He was in awe with Wyoming and instantly in love with the country. He did not shy away from his role as a novice greenhorn and was a source of amusement to his host. Years later, this self-evaluation made its way into his manuscript. There has never been any doubt that the tenderfoot in Owen Wister's famous book, The Virginian, was characterized after the author himself. He opened his book from the tenderfoot's point of view, and many of the incidents had happened to Owen in this very first trip to Wyoming. I was justly styled a tenderfoot. Mrs. Henry had in the beginning endeavored to shield me from this humiliation, but when she found that I was not going to hide my inexperience of Western matters and lay them bare to all the world, begging to be enlightened upon rattlesnakes, prairie dogs, owls, blue and willow grouse, and sage hens, how to rope a horse or tighten the front cinch of my saddle and that my spirit soared into enthusiasm at the mere sight of so ordinary an animal as a white-tailed deer. She let me rush about with my firearms and made no further effort to stave off the ridicule that my blunders perpetually earned from the ranch hands, her own humorous husband, and any chance visitor stopped for a meal or stayed the night. At the ranch of Major Walcott on Deer Creek, Wister wrote with obvious excitement about all the game he could hunt, including snipes. This is an imaginary creature that only comes out in the moonlight, resembling a cross between a jackrabbit and a squirrel. If Wister was ever sent on a snipe hunt, or ever found out what a snipe truly was, he never did say. On July 19th, he details a long trip to Medicine Bow to pick up live trout and bass for stocking. He detailed the town and shared how he slept on the counter of the store while he waited for the train to show up with their fish. All these details showed up in his famous novel as adventures for his tenderfoot, including how the baggage was lost. It was with reluctance that Wister left Wyoming, and he begged his father to send him money so that he could return two years later. His father did so, and by July 1887, Wister was back in the wilderness he loved. He made his way to Fort Washakie and engaged his tour guides, Tiggy, Mason, and West. Tiggy was a Shoshone warrior who was a famous hunter and tracker of big game. Another of his guides, George West was a few years younger than Wister, and the two were destined to become good friends. The summer was spent getting bitten by mosquitoes, eating everything they hunted, including magpies, and exploring the Wind River and Owl Creek country. Random cowboys and Indians would drop into camp, and Owen thrived. He wrote his mother, I am very well, very thin. Hungry at all mills and find this sort of thing even more enchanting than two years ago. Just now, the only sounds to be heard in the world are the crackling of the logs and the tinkle of a bell. 
around one of the horses' necks a few hundred yards away in the darkness, while the serene stars shine down over us. Owen Wister continued to return to Wyoming for a total of six trips. In 1888, his guides were Dick Washakie, the son of Chief Washakie, and once more, his old friend, George West. He faithfully kept his journals and was generally well-liked, despite his status as an Easterner. When told by the commander at Fort Washakie, you know, sir, I don't sympathize with you men from the East who come here and shoot our game. Owen responded, well, sir, did you but know how little of it I shot? You would sympathize with me very deeply. He got on immediately with the commander after that. Although Wister's personal loyalties lay with the cattle barons, he was well liked by the cowboys who told him their tall tales and of life in the saddle. He spent time at the government dances while at the fort, wooing the young ladies making a life on the frontier. He crossed paths with future outlaws and cursed the drummers, the western version of door-to-door -door salesmen that he had to share stages and railroad cars with. By 1893, Owen Wister, still practicing as a lawyer back east, began negotiating a contract to write a series of western fiction for the Harper's Magazine. Frederick Remington was hired to illustrate Wister's stories, which became very popular to both Easterners and Westerners that enjoyed the true fiction of the West. He reshaped the image of the cowboy and the mind of America and kept his fiction as real to life as his editors would allow him to. Len McLean and others were introduced to enthusiastic readers and the first short stories of the Virginian began to appear. His camping adventures changed as he now spent much of his time writing by firelight or in dimly lit cabins. He read his stories to his friends and made the changes necessary to keep them as accurate as possible. The next year, purposely looking for writing material, Wister traveled not only to his favorite state of Wyoming, but to Texas, Arizona, and California. Towards the end of his travels, although he never counted himself as a cowboy or a frontiersman, Wister could proudly set aside the title of Tenderfoot. It was a sentiment that he expressed about himself in The Virginian when he set his character, the Tenderfoot, across Wyoming on a horse by himself. Remembering my eastern helplessness in the year when I had first met the Virginian, I enjoyed thinking how I'd come to be trusted. In those days, I had not been allowed to go from the ranch for so much as a afternoon's ride unless tied to him by a string, so to speak. Now I was crossing unmapped spaces with no guidance. The man who could do this was scarce any longer a tenderfoot. Although he had once himself fallen for cowboy tall tales, Owen Wister could no longer be termed a mere tenderfoot. In 1911, Wister brought his wife and his oldest four children to Wyoming. They spent the summer camping in Yellowstone and at the J.Y. Ranch in Jackson. The children were given the freedom to ride horses bareback into the wilderness, 
under the austere gaze of the Tetons. At last, his daughter Fanny said, we had to return east. We could not stand the thought of leaving. What? Sleep in a real bed again? And see trolley cars? How frightful! No more smell of sagebrush? No more rushing Snake River? No more Grand Teton? Why did we have to go back? Apparently, her parents felt the same nostalgia. For the very next year, they returned with all five of their children, but this time to a ranch of their own in Jackson Hole. When we came to the stone marking the boundary between Idaho and Wyoming, we yelled with joy, Fanny remembered. Every rock, every sagebrush, every aspen tree was different and better because it grew in Wyoming. The family stayed at the JY while they built their two-story cabin. The whole family worked on the structure and moved in before it was finished. In October, with hideous reluctance, they headed back to their family mansion back east. Instead of adventures in Wyoming, the summer of 1913 ended in tragedy. Owen's beloved wife, Mary Channon Wister, died in childbirth at their new home in Rhode Island, leaving the grieving author with six children to raise on his own. Rather than going to the ranch in Wyoming, Wister went to Europe the following summer, fleeing the pain of his wife's death. He was in Munich when the First World War began and spent the next two years campaigning to bring America into the war against Germany. After the war, he spent part of nearly every year in Europe and took his children with him to France. He continued to write both fiction and music. In 1938, at the age of 78, Owen Wister, who had never remarried, died in Rhode Island. Owen Wister blazed the path for Western fiction and inspired future authors such as Louis L'Amour. His Virginian cowboy changed forever how the hero cowboy was portrayed in Western fiction, including the Hollywood cowboy who, in nearly all Westerns, contain influences from the Virginian. To Owen Wister, his most important contribution was to the truth. He rewrote entire stories and threw others away when the facts became too blurred and his fiction became too far away from the truth. In this way, he also became one of Wyoming's first and most famous historians. He never spoke to his children about his 15 collective years of adventures in Wyoming during his lifetime. However, 13 years after he was gone, his story was finally told. In Orrin Rush, the director of the University of Wyoming Library, wrote asking if the family would donate Wister's journals to the Wister Room. His children responded that they had never heard of these journals, but Rush persisted, quoting from Wister's book about Theodore Roosevelt, that Wister had kept a full, faithful, realistic diary of all his Western adventures. Fanny rounded up her brothers and they decided to search the paperwork left behind. Her youngest brother said he would start with their father's desk. The very first drawer he opened 
contained the Western journals. For 65 years, the journals have been in the drawer and the faded word sketches shared the Wyoming adventures that had been at the heart of Owen Wister's fiction. In 1958, Fanny wrote, Thinking back 40 years to our summers in Wyoming, I see that going west in 1885 made my father. Taking us to undomesticated Jackson Hole linked us to his youth, making us in spirit nicks of kin to the country of his choice. Owen Wister witnessed the end of an era which he sought to preserve with his pencil and his word sketches. It is a vanished world. No journals save those which memory can take will bring you to it now. What has become of the horseman, the cowpuncher, the last romantic figure upon our soil? He will never come again. He rides in this historic yesterday. His wild kind has been among us always. Since the beginning, a young man with his temptations, a hero without wings. Thank you for joining us in Wister's Wyoming of late 1880s. I am your host, Jackie Dorothy, and I do recommend that you avoid those mule eggs. Thank you for listening to Pioneers of Outlaw Country. Be sure to subscribe as you don't want to miss a single episode of this historic series. The stories of our pioneers are brought to you by Hot Springs County Pioneer Association. This program has been made possible through a grant from Wyoming Humanities. This was a production of Legend Rock Media.